Well, good morning to you. Glad that you guys are here to worship with us today. My name is James Green. I'm the associate pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. If you've been with us through the whole summer, you know that Pastor Dan has been working through this series called Write It on Your Heart on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to take just a little break from that. Dan's actually out of town performing a wedding this weekend. And he's got some vacation time. And then actually he's doing some planning for some things we're having take place in the fall. One of them is this big, exciting thing we started last year, really led by the Spirit, the Nehemiah Project, an internship program that we do. But then also we're going to focus this entire fall a series on discipleship. Heard how important in Todd's video, I thought it was neat. That Great Commission tells us we're to go out and make disciples and baptize them. So that's what we're going to do this fall, and he's doing some preparing for that. So he's going to take a break for a few weeks, and we wanted to take that time and really dig into something and kind of walk expositionally through a book in the Bible, but we've only got four weeks, so it's going to have to be something kind of short. So we're going to walk through the book of Habakkuk. So if you would like to turn there now, and I'll give you plenty of time to find the book of Habakkuk, <laughs> towards the end of the Old Testament, right between Nahum and Zephaniah. If you're using a Bible app, this is good because you're going to have to learn how to spell Habakkuk, and that's fun in and of itself. Join me there, however you can get there. And I'm pretty fired up to do this book personally because I don't know how to pronounce Habakkuk. I don't know if it's Habakkuk or Habakkuk, and sadly, I still haven't arrived on just one of them, so you may hear me use both as we go along. So please don't make fun of me for that. But, but the truth is, I was drawn to this little book. I'm sure we can get through it in the time. We're going to do an overview of it this week, and then we'll really dig in the next three weeks. But the theme of the book is living by faith. Key verses, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. So I think it's a great follow-up to the book of James that we studied last year. But in addition, as I was reading it and praying over it, I think what we're going to see, I think almost every one of us, that at some point in time in our lives, we've probably been Habakkuk. Habakkuk, he's a guy who questions God. He takes a look at the things that are going on around him, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to him. And so he asks the question, what's up, God? What are you doing? Do you not see the things that are going on around me? It's almost like he says, hey, God, are you not omnipresent? Are you over here dealing with something on the other side of the universe and you're missing what's going on right here? There's violence, there's injustice, there's all these bad things. And so he questions God. And maybe you're thinking, well, I I don't think we're supposed to do that. That sounds kind of bad. We're not supposed to question God, are we? I I wouldn't do that. And so we'll deal with that when Dan comes back because he'll be in the ninth commandment. But for now, I think one of the incredible things... One of the things we'll notice as we read and study God's Word is how it always meets us where we are. Have you ever noticed that? You read something in God's Word, and because of the situation in your life or because of context, something that's going on, something just jumps off the page at you. You're like, man, that's incredible. And then you read it again, that same passage of Scripture some other time, months later or years later, and, and because of where God has you, something else jumps out at you. You're like, wow, how did I miss that, you know? Does that happen to you? I love that when that happens. And so it made me think of my first introduction to the book of Habakkuk. I don't, I don't know, honestly, if I'd ever even read it before. About 12 or 13 years ago, I was on Young Life staff. When you work on Young Life staff, you basically work as a missionary. You have to raise all your support for your own salary, but then also for your whole area for your operating budget. And so I was at this staff conference, and some buddies of mine were there, and we were all sharing. And one of my good friends, his area was in financial deficit. And if your area dips into deficit and it stays in deficit, you don't get paid. It's not unlike missionaries all over the world. So here he was in this spot where he was joining God in ministry, felt like he was doing what he was supposed to do, and yet he wasn't getting paid. And he had a wife and he had young kids, and and he was really, really questioning God. And so we're all sharing, hey, here's where I see God at work in my life. Here's what's going on. And he opens up the book of Habakkuk. 
And he shares this incredible passage in Habakkuk 3, starting in verse 17. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there will be no cattle in the stalls. And think, just a second, for Habakkuk is an agrarian society. Everybody lives as a farmer. This is bad. When you don't have any food, when you don't have any stuff, this is bad. Habakkuk says, yet in the midst of that, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he's made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on my high places. And I heard that, and I thought, oh, what a nice picture. What a great picture of Habakkuk trusting in God. But when my buddy read it, because he'd been Habakkuk, because he was positive he was joining God on this mission, and he couldn't understand what he was doing, it meant something entirely different to him, radically different. We're going to see as we walk through this book a big change in Habakkuk's life because he starts out in chapter 1 questioning God and accusing God. And then there's this crisis of faith he has, and God speaks to him, and he ends up here at the end where he is in that verse saying, hey, God, whatever you do, I'm going to trust in you. So, so think about it as we go through it. Have you been at that spot in your life where you question what God is up to? Maybe it's in your personal life. Maybe you just lost your job. Maybe you've been working at a job, and it's sucking years off your life. It's just draining you. You don't feel it's a good fit. Maybe you've just lost your health. You went to the doctor, and you got a bad diagnosis. Maybe you're married, and you thought, oh, man, I'm going to get married, and it's going to be great, and we're going to be one flesh, and I'm going to invest and pour in. And you got married, and you're not investing. You're not communicating well. And instead, it just feels like your life's crumbling down around you. Maybe you had kids. You had kids, and they were so cute, and they are such a joy, and now they're growing up, and you feel like they're drifting away from your family. They're drifting away from God. Maybe you wanted to have kids desperately, and you couldn't get pregnant. Maybe you got pregnant, then you had a miscarriage. I don't know what your situation is, but there's something that's going on, and you're crying out, where are you, God? What are you doing? And we're in that spot where we don't know what to do. Maybe it's because of what's going on in society around you. I don't think I have to point this out. I spent a real depressing day this week preparing for this message, looking at the news, just looking at violence and injustice and things that are going on around us. Maybe you've noticed it seems like we're in a pretty serious moral decline in society. I read a story, and it blew my mind. I'll share it with you, and, and just because it, it impacted me so much. A group of teenagers, really, in Florida, between 15 and 20 years old, several of them. They weren't a gang or anything, just a group of teenage kids. And one of them got their dad's gun, and they were driving around, and they wanted to shoot things. So they're shooting property, and they're shooting homes. And after a while doing that, they got bored. And one of them said, I wonder what it would be like to kill somebody. in the morning, there's a 17-year-old kid walking to his summer job. They shot him in the back and killed him. They must have liked it. They wanted to do it again. One of the girls in the group posed herself as a prostitute. She set up a meeting with a guy. When she was supposed to go meet him, this whole group of kids runs in. They kill him, steal all stuff out of his house. They got caught. Thank goodness for that crime. You look at the, the violence the injustice that's going on around the world? I mean, do you seriously watch the news sometimes and just have to to take a deep breath? Wow. This is the world that we live in? 
You know why almost all news programs, if you watch a 30-minute news program, it always ends with a story about somebody finding a big bag of money and giving it back or, or a kitty that got rescued, got stuck in the engine of a car, and they drove across the country. They end the stories because you need something that's not quite as terrible to rally around. Well, this is what we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk. That's his story, except for in the end, he gets to rally around something a lot better than a rescued kitty. <laughs> he rallies around God himself. What we read in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, that's just the culmination of a process that God takes Habakkuk through. And the key to it is in that verse. It's the theme of the book, and it's Habakkuk 2, 4. It says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. The outline for the book that we're going to walk through is in your bulletin. It starts with Habakkuk questioning God in chapter 1 and verses 2 to 4. And then we see God's initial response in verses 5 to 11. So that's what we'll look at next week. Well, then then Habakkuk responds again, and he's got some more questions. And that's verse 12 through chapter 2 and verse 1. Well, then God responds again. And he outlines this series of judgments or woes that are going to come. And that's chapter 2, verse 2 through verse 20. And then finally, Habakkuk gets it. He grasps what's going on. So that'll be our, our third and final week. And what he does is he responds with praise. This huge prayer of praise. It's so neat to see. And so that's the outline. And what I'd love to ask you to do is read the book of Habakkuk over the next several weeks. Read through it in its entirety and then go back and look at these sections and kind of dig in and we'll walk through it. But you'll see that outline pretty clearly. Habakkuk goes to God and he says, I don't like it. I don't like what's going on. Why don't you do something? And in his question, what he's really saying is, you're not doing anything. And God comes back and he says, I am doing something. Here's the deal. You can't totally see what, I, what I'm doing. I am doing something. And then he says, and here's something else I'm going to do. He lays out a plan. And Habakkuk goes, oh, no, 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 no. God, I don't like that plan. That's a horrible plan. Do you have something else? And God responds again, and he says, here's the deal. Trust me. Have a little faith. The righteous will live by faith. You've got to trust me. And finally, Habakkuk gets it. That's a good conclusion for Habakkuk. <laughs> he gets it, and he grasps it, and he says, okay, I'll trust you, God. And so that's the spot where we want to be. And it made me think of an illustration. It's a campy old illustration from the movie The Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid, not the remake with Jackie Chan, which technically should have been the Kung Fu Kid, but I'm not going to quabble over that. But but, but in the original Karate Kid, Daniel-san wants to learn karate. He's getting beat up. And he he encounters Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Mr. Miyagi agrees to train him in karate, but he's got unusual training methods. You've seen the movie. He has him like sand a mile a deck. And then he has him wash and wax all his cars. And then he has him stain just a ton of fence around his property. Then he has him paint his house. He has him do all these things, but he doesn't explain to Daniel what's going on. And so at the end, Daniel erupts. He just blows up and he's like, hey, looks like you're taking advantage of me here. (laughs) You're supposed to be training me for karate, but all I'm doing is doing your stuff. And so what we'll see in this scene is, is where Daniel starts to grasp, hey, all this stuff is moving towards something working towards a process. So let's look at the scene and see if we can see that illustration. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me paint the fence. Show me side the side. Yes! 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 So 
Tommy Sanderfroy. I love that he tells him, hey, come back tomorrow. Don't disengage. Don't write this off because you don't know what's going on. If you're my age and you have trouble feeling old, you probably don't want to know that Ralph Macchio is 51 years old. But, of course, I think he was like 37 when he was playing that kid, so I'm not sure about that. But this is what we see in the Karate Kid. Daniel doesn't understand the circumstances. And because he can't see the big picture, he starts to give up. He, he doesn't know what Mr. Miyagi is trying to accomplish. And so he has these questions, and Mr. Miyagi shows him, hey, I'm trying to teach you something here. These things that you're going through, they're going to be valuable. And you can almost see that moment on his face where he starts to get it. He puts it all together, and he says, wow, I see that you're at work here. I didn't understand what you were doing, but now I get it. And that's cute, and that's easy to see in the movie, but, but the deal is, does it translate to our lives? What happens if our stuff is bigger than having to learn karate? And that's why we're going to leave... <laughs> Daniel and Mr. Miyagi, and we're going to jump in and spend some time with Habakkuk and God, because I want us to think about that process. How do we get from that spot to where we're questioning God, to where we have that crisis of faith, to where we get to the end and we say, no matter what, I'll trust you. And here's something I want to point out this week. Habakkuk's not a new story. It wasn't a new story when it was written in the Bible. That crisis of faith, the importance of trusting in God, no matter what our understanding no matter what our circumstance, that story is told over and over again in the Bible. Probably about 1,200 or so years before Habakkuk, we'll read the story of Job in God's Word. You know the story of Job. He was God's guy. God and Satan are talking, trying to wrap your mind around how that works out. And God says, hey, what about my buddy Job? And God in his sovereignty just gives him up. He says, have you considered Job? And Satan says, well, of course Job loves you. <laughs> He has cattle in the stall and sheep in the fold and his, his vines produce fruit. He's got blessing after blessing. He's got a wife and kids and health and wealth and all these things. If he didn't have those things, he'd curse you. And what does God say? God says, have a go at him. And so Job loses all those things. He loses his children and his animals and his health and his wealth, and he's left with nothing. He's left laying in the dirt, scraping the boils off his body with broken pieces of pottery. He's got nothing. It's not entirely true. He's left with something. He's got some really bad theologians as buddies who would rather sit and talk about the theology of suffering than pray for him or try and help him. And he's left with a wife who is less than helpful. Her advice to Job is, curse God and die. And you've got to be thinking, Job's sitting there scratching himself going, come on, really? I lost all my kids and you left her? But that's not in the text. <laughs> Scripture says we're not supposed to add or take away, so I'll just let that one go. I'm just saying. So, so, so Job is going through this hard, hard process. And what does he say while well, he's in the middle of the process? We get to look at it. In Job chapter 13, verse 13, and then again in verse 15, he says this. He tells his bad theologian buddies, be silent before me so that I may speak. He says this incredible thing. Then let come on me what may, whatever God's going to bring. 
And he follows it up in verse 15. He says this, I love it. Though he slay me, he's talking about God, even if he'd kill me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. I don't know what he's doing, so I'm going to ask questions. But Job is, is in this crisis of faith. He's working this through. And you know he gets it. In Job 19, 25, he says this, As for me, I don't understand everything. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Job says, God, even if you kill me, I'm going to trust in you. But I just don't get it. I don't understand what you're up to. And I think a lot of times we end up in that spot. I have questions, God. I don't see where you're working my life. And, and what we fail to realize is faith is a gift from God that is built and tested through those trials, through those suffering times. In the book of Habakkuk, in the book of Job, throughout Scripture, I read it, and I'm always looking for the answers. Where are the answers here? And I think that's what Habakkuk and Job were doing. They, they went to God and they asked, why is this happening? What are you doing? And the reality is it's good that they're asking questions. They're just asking the wrong questions. And I've done this so many times. Instead of asking, why, God, why this? What are you doing? And we need to ask, who? Who is in control? God, are you really in control? I know I struggle with this. I know we struggle with this because it's in God's Word. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Why is that written in there? Because we don't do it. It's a reminder that that's what we're supposed to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll make your path straight. See, when I read Job, I want to read it and have God say, Job, here's, here's the deal. Here's exactly why I had you go through this trial. Here's what I'm trying to teach you in this. I'd love to see that, but that's not what we get, is it? What we get in Job's response, actually, it sounds a little like sarcasm. I mean, it really is sarcastic. Here's just part of God's response in Job chapter 38 and verse 2 to 5. God, the living God, speaks to Job. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and this is scary, I'll ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? God asked Job a bunch of questions, and they're all those kind of questions. Well, who did this? T tell me, who can do this? And who is it that does that? And he asks all these questions, and in that dialogue with God, Job gets it. He has an encounter with the living God, and he gets it, and we're supposed to get it and learn from it. We know that Job did because we see it in his reply. In Job chapter 42, in verses 2 to 6, he throws up his hands he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He says, therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand. Things that were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And you see a total change in Job because he says this, here now and I'll speak, but, but I'll ask you and you instruct me. He says, I've heard of you before by the hearing of the ear, but now. Now that I've been through these trials, now that I see that you're up to something, now my eyes see you. And therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. See, Job had his faith tested. He didn't understand the plan, clearly, but he grew through that crisis of faith. And that's what we'll see Habakkuk do. And that's why it's not a new story in the Bible. About 150 years 
before we hear from Habakkuk, the prophet Jonah goes through another tough process with God. We all love the story of Jonah. God wants him to go preach to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are a, just a wicked and vile group of people that God used in history. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians, preach this message of repentance. And Jonah says, no thanks. What's that God you're calling? I, la, 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 I can't hear you, God. And, and what he's really saying is, have you lost your mind, God? Do you know who the Assyrians are? They don't fear you. Why would you want to go preach a message of repentance to them? And what we see, what we're supposed to get, is this great picture of obedience and trusting and having faith, even if we don't know what God's doing, that we'll be obedient to do what he asks. I think there's another great picture in Jonah of God's great love for all people. That's what we're supposed to see, but we can see it now. Jonah didn't even see it. He went. He was obedient, but if you read Jonah chapter 4, he didn't want to go, and he leaves, and then he sits and waits for God to wipe him out. So his heart wasn't in the right place. Well, he didn't see the end picture. See, we get to see it. We have the entirety of the Bible today. We can read the book of Nahum and know that Nineveh gets theirs. God's good. He, he doesn't miss stuff. We know that. But Jonah didn't know it. And was he willing to trust, even though he didn't know the plan? See, God always has a plan. Habakkuk comes along, and it's the same story. Understanding what God is up to is not nearly as important as responding in faith and obedience when he tells us to do something. It's okay if we don't understand. We just have to respond in faith. And there's a difference between talking about faith or hearing a good story about faith and actually experiencing it and growing through it. Jump to the New Testament with me, if you will, for just for a second, because there's a great picture in here, and we're going to look in Mark chapter 9, verses 22 to 24 has to me one of the most puzzling verses in the New Testament. There's a father, and his boy has been demon-possessed. And, and I mean, this guy has tried all kinds of things to help his boy, and finally does the smart thing. He goes to Jesus. The demons tried to kill the boy before. He's tried to throw him in the fire, tried to throw him in the water. Can you imagine, as a father, that was one of your kids, and you just felt powerless to help? And so finally, he's going to go to Jesus. He approaches him, and clearly he's at his wit's end. He's lost all his hope. He says this in Mark chapter 9, verse 22. It, talking about the demon, has often thrown him both into the fire and in the water to destroy him. And he says this, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And that just reveals the desperation. I've tried these other things that didn't work. If you can do anything. And Jesus responds with this great answer. If you can, I'm Jesus. If you can, he says, all things are possible to him who believes. And what does the guy do? Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. See, he wants more than anything for his boy to be well. He'd clearly be willing to do anything. He doesn't understand why this is happening. He's tried lots of things and they don't work. And so that's why he's desperate. And he goes to Jesus. He says, if you can do something, but help me with my unbelief. Because I'm not sure if you can. You have to appreciate his honesty. You have to appreciate his transparency here. But see, what he's actually doing is he's questioning Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, you haven't seen the stuff I've seen. Demon throws him in the fire. Demon throws him in the water. And so what he's questioning is, can I trust you? You say it's okay if I believe, but do I really have that kind of belief? The Greek word for belief used in that passage, it's used interchangeably for faith. 
It's the word pisteo, and it's a deep word because it goes beyond just believing the way we think about believing to having confidence in, being able to trust. And that's what God is trying to teach us through the life of Job, through the life of Jonah, through the life of Habakkuk, through the life of this father in Mark 9. What if we don't get it? What if we don't get what God is up to? Will we still trust that he's in control and that he has a plan and that he's not asleep at the wheel? Will we trust that the things he's allowing in our life he's going to use the way Mr. Miyagi did for Daniel-san? Hey, sand on the floor isn't just about sand on the floor. I'm teaching you something. Are we going to sit and say, I think God's just poking some fun at us? It's a real question we need to ask because some of us are questioning God here today because of the things that are happening around us in society or because of the things that are happening in our life. And this theme of this book is going to meet us there, I think, because living by faith is a big deal. And that's the key verse, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. That verse is quoted directly three times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uses it twice, and then the writer of Hebrews. Paul quotes it first in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, and then chronologically in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. And if you look at those, I think it's pretty easy to see why this verse is so important to Paul. Because I think Paul suffered from a problem, and it's probably the same problem that Habakkuk had. You remember in the verse, God tells Habakkuk, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And I don't know this for sure, but I think when Habakkuk would have first heard this, he probably thought God was talking about the Babylonians. Babylonians were the folks who'd taken over after the Assyrians, and they were horrible people, and they were causing most of this grief that Habakkuk was having. And so he probably thought God was talking about them. He certainly didn't think God was talking about him. But Habakkuk probably had a pride issue, and pride is a big, big issue for God. Well, the Apostle Paul struggled with some pride issues as well. If you know Paul's story, he was Saul. He was this guy who was trusting in himself. He was a legalist. Calls himself by the title, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He thought that he could please God through his own efforts. And listen, I mean, there's really nothing more prideful than that. This happens a lot today. You see people who are trying to earn forgiveness, earn salvation by being religious or by being moral or by being good enough. That's what Saul was trying to do. In Philippians chapter 3, in verses 4 to 6, the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of, of true Christ followers, folks who don't trust in themselves for salvation, they trust in God. And he references who he used to be as Saul, kind of gives a biography of himself. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he gives his resume. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, of the best tribe, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he starts talking about the law. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. But that's out of context. Because we understand when Paul writes this, he's already told on himself the theology that he got from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith, has already taken hold in his life. He doesn't believe this anymore. We know this because he says this in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, well, then how is he justified? But through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. 
since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And then he goes on and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in Galatians 3.11. He says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Why? Because the righteous man shall live by faith. Several years later, Paul's restating the gospel. He's explaining the gospel to the Romans. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 again. It means that much to him. He says in Romans 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. How? From faith to faith. As it is written in Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith. He's talking about the gospel message. He says the gospel that we know, the, the bad news, the fact that God is righteous and we're not, we're sinful. And so we're separated in that way. That's bad news. But then he talks about this glorious good news and the fact that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die in our place so that we can be forgiven of sin. How? If we believe. If we have faith. If we live by that faith that allows us to recognize who Jesus is and what he came to do and that he conquered sin and death and made a way for us to have eternal life with God. So I think Habakkuk 2.4 was huge for a guy like Paul who'd spent the first part of his life trying to be good enough and then realized, I can't do that. The righteous live by faith. Then it's quoted one more time in the New Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, and that's in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And it's in this passage that I think is really, really helpful for us if we're in a period of our life where there's a lot of hardship, where there's a lot of trials. And here's how the author uses it. He's addressing believers in Christ Jesus. He says, remember the former days. Remember before you were saved. He says, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. How do you suffer? Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. People made fun of you for being a Christ follower. And then partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So you were an encouragement to other Christ followers. He says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. What was promised, he tells us here, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come. Jesus is coming back, and he will not delay. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, but my righteous one shall live by faith says, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we're not of those who shrink back to destruction. It's like Mr. Miyagi saying, come back tomorrow. Don't disengage. We're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This looks like hard times in Hebrews 10. These believers are facing reproach and tribulation, and God's saying, don't disengage. I've got a plan. Just trust me in this. My good friend Bill Reeser, the area director with Young Life in this area, and he just accepted a promotion with Young Life, and he's the associate regional director now. But it left us in the southeast Missouri area without a Young Life guy. And so a good friend of mine, a kid named Elliot, kid, he's 30, <laughs> a young man named Elliot Swoboda was praying about taking the job. Now, he had a job. He works in construction. He likes that job. But he really was feeling called to this Young Life job. But it's a scary kind of job. It's a missionary job. What if he ends up in the same spot that my buddy at the beginning was, where he doesn't, you know, raise his salary and he, he can't support his family. He's got a wife, he's got a little girl, got another baby on the way. 
And so he called me. He was like, hey, can we get together and talk? You know, I want to pray. I want to, want to hear what you have to say about this. And so we're hanging out, and, and that's his fear. Gosh, you know, will God take care of me in this? Will God provide for me in this? And I was reminded, I'd kind of forgot about this story, but I was reminded to share with Elliot a time when I was the area director with Young Life. And Elliot was on staff with me as student staff guy. And it wasn't a huge trial, but we had this great place where we're meeting, this big warehouse thing, but it didn't have any offices in it. And we needed some offices to do some planning in to, if we ever had to counsel high school students. And so I said to Elliot, hey, why don't we just build some? Because he's, really, he's a contractor. And, and I was like, I can help. Let's build some offices. He's like, well, we need, you know, some stuff. <laughs> I was like, we don't have any money. I said, why don't we go ask if somebody will donate it to us? And I was like, ah, I don't know. That's a lot of stuff. And he made a list. It's a two-page list. Here's all the stuff we'll need. He's like, what do we do? I was like, let's go. Let's just pray and let's go in faith and ask. And so I remember, I still can clearly picture this. We're standing in the parking lot of this contractor supply. He knew one of the guys there. I knew a guy. And we prayed right before we went in. We prayed like one of those Nehemiah prayers in the book of Nehemiah where he's going to the king to ask for all the stuff to rebuild the wall. And like as he's going, he shoots up this prayer. Okay, now, God, that'll be good. And he walks in. And I walk in and I hand the list to this guy. And I was like, hey, you know, and I explained the whole situation. Here's what we're trying to do. Would you just give us this stuff? And he looks through the list on page one, and he flips it over, looks through the list on page two, and he hands it back to me, and he goes, when do you want it delivered? And I reminded Elliot of this, because the idea was, it's not just that God is so big that he can get us out of our trials. He's so big that he'll put us in the trial, because he wants us to learn from it. It's a great quote from Mark Driscoll. He talks about faith this way. He says, faith is like a muscle. It grows as you exercise it. But if you don't, it atrophies. So that's why faith leads to more faith. Leads to more faith. Leads to more faith. It's why God allows hardships and trials to come in your life, to strengthen your faith. So that you'll be closer to him, because his goal for you and for me is not always comfort, but closeness to him. And that's what we see in the life of Job in the life of Paul, countless others in the Bible. It's what we see happen in the life of Habakkuk. I'll close today with one last example about this theme, this theme of living in faith. And it's a lesson from history, a guy named Martin Luther. You guys might be familiar with Luther. Habakkuk is inspired to write his book. Well, 600 years after he writes it, the apostle Paul reads it. He's so moved by it, he changes his entire theology on salvation. You fast forward another 1,500 years after that, So it's 2,100 years after God has spoken to Habakkuk, and there's this German monk named Martin Luther. And this little book has a huge impact on him. He was a guy who thought he had to earn forgiveness. He thought he had to earn forgiveness from God. He was aware of his sin, but he didn't have really any understanding of God's grace. So because of his horrible, sinful condition, he vowed to just work as hard as he could. He'd do everything he could to earn forgiveness of sin from God. So he devoted his life to ministry because that's horrible punishment. But, but that's what he did. He, he didn't devote it to ministry to help point people toward God. He wanted to punish himself. He decided he'd become a monk, and he was going to live simply, humbly. There, there were periods in Luther's life where he would eat, like, basically inedible food, or he'd starve himself to death. There were periods in his life where he wouldn't allow himself to sleep on a bed. He slept on the floor. He thought he was so 
wicked and sinful that he shouldn't have any worldly comfort at all. So he decides to become a monk, and he's a professor of theology. And if you read some of these stories on Luther, they're hard to read. But by God's grace, something incredible happens. So today, when we talk about Luther, we recognize him as one of those guys with John Wycliffe and John Calvin that started the Protestant Reformation. They were these guys who went and protested the structure and the doctrine and the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church back in the day. And one of the things Luther was really, really vocal against is the practice of paying indulgences. It's this idea that you could buy forgiveness from God. By the end of his life, Luther was so aware you can't earn forgiveness, you certainly can't buy forgiveness. That group of guys began what we see today as the Reformation, the idea that we can't save ourselves. God saves us through his son Jesus. But here's where Luther was. He was in such a bad place. Real honestly, it said that he was in such a spot of despair that he was contemplating suicide. But while he was in that spot, he was studying the Psalms. And the passage that he was studying took him back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 quotes Habakkuk 2.4. God saved Martin Luther through that verse. Talking about Habakkuk 2.4, here's Luther's quote. As it was written, he who through faith is righteous, not through being good, not through being moral, not through being religious, he who is righteous shall live. Luther said, before those words broke open my mind, I hated God. I was angry with him because he was not content with frightening sinners by the law and by the miseries of life. He still further increased our torture by the gospel. He says, but then, by the Spirit of God, I understood those words. The just shall live by faith. And he says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and have entered paradise through open gates. Here, in this verse, a totally other face of the entire Scriptures showed themselves to me. I'm blown away by that. So that's going to be the theme of our study for the next several weeks. What happens in that process? What happened in Habakkuk's life that took him from questioning God in chapter 1 to trusting in chapter 3? He went from having doubts in the beginning to just being devoted in the end. He went from being worried in the beginning to just having worship in the end. He was fearful in the beginning because he was asking the why questions. Why, God? Why is this happening? What, what are you doing? And he showed up as faith in the end. I'm going to trust you, God, no matter what you're doing. Habakkuk begins with that question mark, why? But it ends up with an exclamation point, who? Who's in control? And it's God. The answer is always God. And Habakkuk's life was radically changed by that fact that God is in control. And he had a plan for Habakkuk's life and for Job's life and for Paul's life and for Martin Luther's life and for my life and for your life. The righteous live by faith, nothing else. We're supposed to live by faith. We have the opportunity today to take communion. It's really an incredible, incredible thing. And just before we do, I want to kind of clearly share Communion's a great time to get right with God. If you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, and you're in that spot where Saul was, where Luther was, where scores of people throughout history have been, where you think, I gotta be good enough. I gotta earn my forgiveness. Listen, that's 
Nothing could be further from the truth. We can't trust in ourselves for something that we can't do, that only God can do. So God can meet you there today. And the idea is all we have to do is admit our sin. All we have to do is confess our sin and give it to God and ask for forgiveness that comes through Jesus and then trust in him. Walk with him. Belong to him as a child of God. That's what we do. If you're a Christ follower here today, this is a great time to reaffirm what God is doing in your life because we will. We'll examine our hearts. We'll confess our sins. And if we're in the middle of a trial, like Habakkuk was, like those believers in Hebrews 10, then we can ask God at this time, use these things to build our faith. Help us to see where you're at work. Remind us to lean in on you, God, not ourselves. The communion elements are on the table in the room around you, and so Ryan's going to come, and he'll play some music for some response time. And that's what we'll get to do, respond. Let me pray for the bread and the cup. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for the chance to study your word. Thank you for the fact that 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk asked some questions and you showed up. And I think the kind of questions he asked, they're the the kind of questions we ask. (laughs) Why, God? What are you up to? What are you doing? Why is this thing, whatever bad thing it is, why is this happening? And I praise you and I thank you for the answers that are found in this incredible little book, that you have a plan for us, that we can trust in you even when we don't understand the plan, even if we can't see it. God, it's my prayer right now for anyone who's here who's been trying to earn forgiveness, been trying to be good enough for salvation, that you'd reveal to us we can't do that on our own, God. The righteous live by faith, faith in you through Christ. Daddy, if there are those here who need encouragement, I pray that you would meet us just exactly where we are. God, you always show up exactly where we are, and we'd sense your presence and your encouragement in our lives. God, I do. I pray for the bread and the cup, the opportunity to examine our heart, confess our sin, and the reality, the reminder that even the ability to do that comes from faith. You are so good. God, we just love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.